0: Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., Member FDIC.
1: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and five G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with Location Telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobilecom now. Dealing with pests can be
0: a pain, but relax. Terminix can help because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T E R M I N I X.com. Pushkin. Hello, Tim Harford here, and there'll be a brand new episode of Cautionary Tales next week as per our usual schedule. But this week, I want to talk about something a bit different. Well, about all kinds of different things, because the conversation you're about to hear is full of the most delectable digressions. We talk about the invention of the bicycle, why some inventions fail, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the emancipation of women, the great stock market bicycle bubble, and the four possessions that define any successful household. Who's we? Well, me, Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales. In my alter ego is the author of a book, 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy. And Dallas Campbell, the host of Patented, History of Inventions. Patented is a wonderful podcast from the History Hit Network. Every few days there's a delightful, light-hearted yet knowledgeable conversation about an invention. Anything from the satellite to the pyramid. I recommend you check it out while you wait for next week's episode of Cautionary Tales. And until then, here's me and Dallas Campbell talking about the bicycle and so much more.
2: Hello, I'm Dallas Campbell. Welcome to Patented, a podcast all about the history of inventions from History Hit. Uh, today on the show, we are talking about the Humble Bicycle. Invented in the mid-1800s, bikes have had enduring popularity, promising freedom and mobility at a low price point. 200 years later, the basic design and function of the bike remains pretty much the same. They're still powered by sweat, e-bikes excluded obviously, They're still made up of wheels, frames, pedals, chains, gears. Cyclists are still exposed to the traffic and the elements, in contrast to, say, the comfort of the car. And they still come with the potential for freedom and mobility and excitement. And we saw this clearly in the pandemic when supply was unable to keep up with demand for bicycles. People wanted to move around safely and quickly, and the Humble Bike was the easy answer. And for those of us, like me, living in cities and towns it's impossible to ignore the boom in bike-sharing apps, which only seems to be growing. Research from Statista suggests that in 2020, the bike-sharing app market was estimated to be worth 3.3 billion. Crikey. And by 2026, it'll reach over 13.7 billion. These apps make bikes an even more visible feature in our day-to-day lives. If you live in the city, you'll know what it's like. You see banks of them parked absolutely everywhere. They also lower the barrier to entry to people cycling even further. So they're a really interesting phenomenon. These days, you don't even need to own a cycle to be a cyclist. Today on the show, I'm joined by the wonderful Tim Harford, host of the podcast Cautionary Tales and the BBC's 50 Objects That Defined the Modern Economy. Today, we are going back to the origins of the bicycle and to explore how they've remained steadfast in their utility in an ever-changing world. Tim Harford, welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. I absolutely love your podcast, Cautionary Tales, which I've been listening to a lot recently. And of course, every time I listen to an episode of Cautionary Tales, I've got to ask him about that. Well, yeah, now, now's your chance. I know, I know, but I've got too many ideas like fizzing around and because I'm an idiot and I haven't actually landed any of these ideas in a way that any of them are going to make sense. We're going to talk about bicycles and we'll get on to invention stories in a minute. But I just listened to your episode about Clive Sinclair and the C5. There's a thing that you mentioned in that particular episode, which I think is so interesting. And it's this idea of adjacent possibilities, this idea of, in the world of innovation and invention, a little bit like evolutionary biology, there are all kinds of possibilities. And in these rooms of possibilities, there are doors that we can go through. And the secret is you can't do big jumps in rooms far away and sort of shadow futures. Yeah, it's very hard to do. It's really hard to do. You don't get, well, you know, in evolutionary biology, of course, we know that, but it kind of works in the innovation. And Clive Sinclair, I know I'm digressing, we haven't even started yet, but I'm already on onto a digression, was a kind of victim of looking too far ahead for doors in future possibilities that were not quite
0: ready yet. He was indeed. And I don't regard Sir Clive Sinclair as a digression from the bicycle at all, because I think one of the uh, problems he faced was he was distracted by bicycle regulations. so we should talk about that at some stage but before we do the adjacent possible you've already discussed it on the show before Matt Ridley talks about it. it's an influential idea in certain circles, but I think it's really informative comes from evolutionary biology as you say, there're just certain things that you can't do even if you have the idea because all of the supporting infrastructure just just isn't there. and Sir Clive Sinclair, for those who don't know, Uh, made his money in pocket calculators, and then dramatically increased his money, being one of the most successful computer entrepreneurs the world had ever seen in the 1980s, and then lost almost all of it, making this ridiculous vehicle called the C5, which is impossible to describe. It's like like riding around in a giant white stiletto with roller skates or something. Just an (laughs) absurd vehicle.
2: (laughs) You must have wanted one. We must be roughly the same age. Because I remember when they came out and I'm like, Oh my God, this is the future. And it was like, I must have... And of course, I didn't get one. Yeah, to a
0: to a 12-year-old boy, it seemed incredible. My goodness. I didn't realise they didn't work at the time. It's only now I realized they were not very good. They, yes. And I mean, the main problem, I think, was the batteries. There were lots of different problems, but the fundamental problem was the batteries. Mm. Batteries were were very heavy, were expensive didn't take you very far, and didn't work in the cold. So that was a problem, particularly since Sir Clive chose to unveil this invention in January, <laughs> I think. Um, <laughs> I know. So wrote the, the London roads are covered in, in slush and the batteries are conking out, and they just didn't realise that was going to be an issue. But what makes me feel for Sir Clive is when you hear his vision for electric vehicles and and also when you hear his vision for computers you realize the guy was absolutely right in both respects I mean, he saw he saw yeah. google coming on he moment. saw siri coming he saw tesla coming he saw it all coming he tried to make it happen and with his computers such as the zx81 and the zx spectrum he you know he was able to to make this important incremental step and make a great product but with the c5 this proto electric car uh, just, uh, just wasn't good enough, and yeah, left him a laughing stock, which is a great shame. It really is. It really is, yeah. One of the people who tweeted their happy memories of playing with Sir Clive's computers it was Elon Musk. Elon Musk loved Sir Clive's computers. Yeah. And of course, Elon Musk is a man <laughs> who, like Sir Clive, made his money in tech, and then, you know, as in, you know, computing and software, and it was, it was a PayPal, and then took that money, and like Sir Clive had this vision of an electric future, But unlike Sir Clive, instead of embarrassing himself and losing almost everything, he became the richest man in the world. And that is the difference. I don't think it's any difference in their talents. It's a difference in whether they had the adjacent possible on their side or not.
2: I mean, crikey, though. I mean, Elon Musk nearly went bust a few times. I think in the beginnings of SpaceX, it was a kind of coin flip, whether whether it was going to go bust or not. And you're absolutely right. I just think in his house with all these doors, these adjacent doors, he was just lucky that the doors were a little bit closer to him. But yeah, I um, I yeah. think we're going to have a revisionist view of Clive Sinclair soon, I, I hope. I hope we kind of remember him fondly because I know he had a kind of quite a chaotic life towards the end. Uh, which you kind of go into detail a little bit in your podcast about, you know, he became a poker player, which I always thought was quite... I remember watching late-night poker in the 90s, actually, and all these amazing people were on, like, people like Clive Sinclair. I'm like, who knew that Clive Sinclair became, like, a poker champion?
0: Yeah, there's your problem. He, he was into <laughs> poker before it was cool as well. He was just like massively
2: ahead, massively ahead of, of everything. And but actually, and it's weird now, I live in central London, I walk out the door now, and the pavement is littered with electric bikes. And again, one of the things you talk about this idea of the shared economy, thanks to the internet, of course, which didn't exist when Clive Sinclair was doing the C5. The internet, the fact that we can have apps that let us take bikes and ride them around and then dump them. And that was a pretty fundamental to go through. Yes.
0: I, so I was quite struck. I was rereading a piece I did for the BBC uh, maybe three years ago, and it's, it became part of my book, The Next 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy. And I speculate on the future of bikes, and I point out that they, they seem to have a very bright future. But interestingly to me, I think I missed the big picture. So I was pointing out, oh yeah, with um, apps and with, with sort of sharing economy technologies, you could just have these bikes lying around and uh, you can rent one and recycle it for a couple of miles and then just leave it. And by the way, the roads will be cleaner and safer because there'll be electric cars and they'll probably be self-driving. But what I missed was now obvious and just a few years later obvious fact that they'll take the battery technology from electric cars and they'll stick the batteries in bikes and indeed in scooters. And, yeah. and even you know, I think yeah. maybe twenty eighteen, maybe even twenty nineteen. I was writing this. That wasn't obvious. And suddenly, it's like, of course, that's what's going to happen. No. So these things can that's, be that's what's can gonna be happen. hard to predict. Yeah.
2: Wow, the the bicycle, it's so interesting. It is such a symbol, really, the bicycle, in lots of ways. It's the simplicity I think we like about it that makes it so interesting. It's it's a symbol of the future. It's a symbol about change. It's a symbol about, you know, emancipation. It's a symbol about freedom and equality. All these different things, I think, make it really, really interesting. One of my favourite films is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which you will have seen, I'm hoping.
0: Please say yes. Yeah, although uh, a long time ago.
2: A long time ago. Okay, so you think of it as a Western. It's a Western. You know, it's Paul Newman and Robert Redford, and it's a kind of comedy buddy move. But it's very much a film about transition, about change, and it's about the end of one era and the beginning of another era you know, here are two bank robbers on the make and their whole lives collapse because the world is changing around them and they don't have the ability to change and eventually it ends and there's the famous ending where they get shot and, and that's how it ends. But there's a scene in it about the bicycle and they're standing in a square in a sort of Western town and there's a bicycle salesman who says, welcome to the future and he holds up this brand new thing and it's 1890 something and he's extolling the virtues of the bicycle, how wonderful it is and the horse is dead and this is going to be the new thing. And then there's the weird scene with Catherine Ross and Paul Newman on the bicycle with the rain drub- Keep falling on my head And they do all the bicycle stunts And at the end They crash the bicycle And Paul Newman Throws it in the bin So the future's all yours You lousy bicycle <laughs> And it's just a weird Incongruous Scene that shouldn't really be there in the middle of the Western, but it's about the bicycle and it's about future and it's the invention of the bicycle and how Paul Newman can't adapt to it and and then his whole life unravels from there. So it is this I don't know. It's an interesting symbol, I think, of
0: lots of different things. It, it is, and it's sorry that was a complete <laughs> no, no. It's it's lovely and and yes, the bicycles moment was was there in the late nineteenth century. It's intriguing how long it existed in a proto form that was pretty useless and then how mm. rapidly it became modern. Well, let's
2: start at the beginning of the bicycle. How do we even define a bicycle? Is it like the two-wheelness of it?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose so it's two wheels, right? It's a two-wheeled, non-powered yeah. device, I suppose is thing. how you describe it. So you can make a case that bicycle number one uh, was demonstrated around 1817, 1818. I forget the exact date. There was a gentleman called Karl mm. von Drayse, in what we would now call Germany. And he had been working on a wooden horse, effectively. He'd been working on a cheaper alternative to the horse. And the reason he'd been doing that is because there'd been several bad harvests. The price of oats had risen and it was expensive to keep a horse. Well, it had always been expensive to keep a horse, but it was getting even more expensive to keep a horse. And so he was quietly working away on a device that wouldn't need to be fed with oats In 1815, there was a catastrophic explosion in what we would now call Indonesia of Mount Tambora. changed the world's weather dramatically for several years. 1816 in Europe became known as the year without summer. Nobody knew it was anything to do with a volcano, but it it was. Crops failed. There was Mm. widespread starvation. It was absolutely catastrophic. Uh, One of the things that was invented was Frankenstein. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein that summer. But another thing that was invented, and there were several inventions, but another thing that was invented in the shadow of this year without summer was, was Carl Drace's Velocipede, or sometimes called a Dracienne. There were no pedals or
2: anything on this, is it? It's just to kind of describe a, a Velocipede, just so we've got a, an image of it. There were no, uh,
0: no pedals. Now you're com- you're complaining here about the details. No pedals? Yes, yeah, sure. Okay. Who needs pedals? But no, you're right. So this is one of the reasons. One of the reasons it was limited was you didn't have very good roads. And one of the reasons it was limited was you didn't have pedals. So you you effectively it looked a bit like a modern bike and then you realized the you know it had handlebars with some steering and it had a crossbar and two wheels and a saddle and you sat on the saddle but your legs would drape on either side of the bike and your feet would touch the ground and you'd just propel yourself with these long loping strides. So it's dramatically inferior to what we now regard as a, as a bicycle. There was a bit of a fad for them. They were sometimes called dandy horses. So for about six months, Mm. people would be charging around the streets of London on these things. Everybody thought they were ridiculous. And they very rapidly went out of fashion. Hipsters of the time would would have been... Yeah, yeah. But these things didn't have brakes as well as not having pedals. And so, yeah, they weren't really very good. Mm. And they just sort of disappeared for decades. And it takes a while for an improved version to be delivered. The next stage in the bicycle's evolution is the penny farthing. The penny farthing is something we, I think, regard as this sort of very quaint Victorian thing. And we imagine somebody with a a top hat or a bowler hat and a four-piece suit and a pocket watch on a gold chain and all that, you know, a monocle and all this sort of stuff (laughs) actually... They were speed machines. And the reason the front wheel was so big was not as some kind of fashionable affectation. It was because that was the way to get speed. Because without gearing, as you push the pedals, you don't go very fast. So you need to make the wheel bigger and bigger and bigger. At that point, well, they presumably must have had chains, but not, no one had invented a bicycle chain yet, which is the solution to the big wheel. That, yes, gearing, gearing and chains, yes. Now, that's an, that's an interesting point. I'm not sure exactly when the bicycle chain itself was perfected, but there's a general story in bicycle manufacture of trying to make, make interchangeable parts that work cheaply. And the interchangeability is important because it means that you know something fails, you can just buy a replacement part and fix it. And interchangeable parts was not a new idea. So the military had perfected this idea of interchangeable parts. You want a musket where if something goes wrong with a musket, you just grab another part of the musket and you know grab a spare and fit the spare on the battlefield, and it doesn't require days and days of of handcrafted smithing. So that idea had been around since the time of the French Revolution. Got, slightly got lost in the noise of the French Revolution, but there's this famous demonstration that Thomas Jefferson witnesses in Paris of a French gunsmith taking apart 10 muskets in front of an audience and just throwing all the parts in a box and just randomly mixing all the parts and then taking random parts out of the box, reassembling them into a musket and showing that the musket works. And that blew Thomas Jefferson's mind. It was incredible. But that was really high-end military technology. So the what commercialized it and made it available to the everyday citizen was bicycle manufacture. So one of the mm. problems that bicycle manufacturers are trying to solve is, can I make, say, links to a chain, or can I make cogs, or can I make the spokes of a wheel in a standard way? that so they're all interchangeable in a way that's not super expensive. And, that, and they achieved that, and that then paves the way for certain other small inventions such as the motor car. It paves the way for Henry Ford's assembly line. That's really interesting. We can James Burke ourselves from in connections
2: from the bicycle to the motor car. I think it was Rover mm. as well. Was it Rover though, who obviously made cars in the UK? They were making bicycles.
0: Yeah. Rover were, were the first British manufacturers of what became known as a safety bicycle. And then Rover as older listeners will know, then became uh, very big players in the British uh, motor car industry. And of course, you've got the Wright Brothers, who were bicycle mechanics, who, who built the plane. So you can, you can go all the way to the plane if you really want to make the connections.
2: Yeah. The Wright Brothers is another great story of innovation. Of course, the Wright Brothers were not the first in flight, but they were arguably the first in controlled flights because they yeah. realised actually the mechanics of flying of pitch, roll and yaw, which they evolved from their work with bicycles you know yeah. that's how it, sort of, how, how it sort of came to be can we just pause on penny farthings for a moment because I'm really interested in the penny farthing yes because as a sort of design solution okay before we have chains before we have brakes the way in order to get speed and you say they're racing machines is to have a giant front wheel they are such peculiar objects who was making them and why were they making them was it like okay we've got this sort of dandy horse thing which has become a bit of a novelty we're now going to race them we know, we, because that's what humans like to do we like to turn everything into sport or art We'll be
0: back after this short break. Tim Harford here. You're listening to a conversation between me and Dallas Campbell from the Patented podcast. Cautionary Tales will be back next week, and Patented will be back after this brief message. As a loyal listener to Cautionary Tales, you probably consider yourself pretty smart, and you are. But how smart is your wallet?
1: at tmobile.com/now
0: This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix may not be able to rewrite history or take on society's problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home: pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. And now, back to Patented, with me, Tim Harford, and Dallas Campbell. Yeah, yes. And it's fearless young gentlemen are the people who are riding them. And actually, I need to. Let me just read you a nice quotation from the next 50 things that that made the modern economy, if I may uh, advertise my own book for a second. I just love this. So you've got these five-foot wheels. You're on top of this five-foot wheel. You've got massive potholes because these are mid-19th century roads. Bone-shaking suspension. You'd hit this pothole and you'd just be pitched forward. And um, one gentleman says, As you pitched forward, you'd encounter a nice straight iron handlebar close across your waist to imprison your legs and make quite certain that it should be your face that first reached the surface of this unyielding planet. So, not for the faint-hearted. Unyielding planet, that's great. Simpler times,
2: Tim. You see, we didn't worry about safety and this kind of thing. Have you ever been on a penny farthing? They're absolutely lethal for exactly the reason you've just read out. I have a friend who races penny farthings still, and she owns a couple of penny farthings. Uh, My friend Kat. Hello, Kat. Uh, But she races them, and they're just terrifying. They're just unbelievable. Yes,
0: I can believe it. Having not so very long ago, a couple of years ago, fallen off a regular bicycle because the chain mm-hmm. failed, It's the importance yeah. of maintenance, and hit the tarmac face first. Yeah. That was, it wasn't a joke and I, I wouldn't have wanted to be falling yeah. any further than I already did. So yeah, I can only imagine really what it is like to fall from that height yeah. and just to smack into the, the tarmac.
2: So but there was still really—I mean, they were just for racing the penny farthing. Is that people weren't sort of riding around on them particularly to get from A to B? As I sort of—I mentioned at the beginning we talked about emancipation and about how you know suddenly the bicycle can help low-wage people get around cheaply, and we can talk about the emancipation of women as well. I think, but the penny farthing
0: was not that. Yes, no, it was a huge, a huge factor in the emancipation of women, and, and Cap Cap will be able to. Tell you much more about that than I will, but I think it was the safety bicycle rather than the penny farthing that really opened it up to the masses. And that this wasn't this rather daring, foolhardy thing, but it was a it was a mm. sort of simple, practical.
2: What do we mean by the safety bicycle? What defines the safety bicycle? Good. What defines the safety bicycle is you're not you're <laughs> not sort of Five foot, the, the seat
0: seat is Basically not five my, foot up.
2: Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. You're not going to kill yourself automatically. So it's much more like the shape of the original velocipede, where your you know your feet can touch the ground. So obviously, it really helps if you do, if you can put your feet down when you get into any trouble. The bicycle is safer. But the reason that that the bicycle went from the shape of the velocipede, which looks modern, up to this crazy penny farthing shape, and then back down, it brings the saddle back down to a height of say three feet, a meter. What makes that possible is gearing. So you've got the gears, you've got the chains, and then you can travel at a reasonable speed by pedaling. The Velocipede didn't have pedals, the Penny Farthing didn't have gears. The Safety Bicycle has pedals and gears and can travel at a reasonable speed while also traveling at a reasonable height. Now, at the same time, you've got manufacturing improvements which are making the bikes lighter and stronger. You have the diamond frame very quickly comes along, which is a very simple, strong way to support the structure of the bicycle, and you can make it lighter again. You have pneumatic tyres. Dunlop comes along with pneumatic tyres, and suddenly the ride is much smoother. And this is all happening within the space of a decade. Uh, at the end of the 19th century, so it's very dramatic.
2: Did all these innovations? Was it all the same people who came up with these innovations? Did whoever was making these bicycles say, "Oh, this person is making pneumatic tires," or this person is understands gearing? And I'm just trying to find how, how all these little pieces came together.
0: So, my understanding. So, I'm a dilettante of innovation, so I, I can't tell you every detail about the me too, me too about how the how the bike was invented. But my impression, distinct impression, is that these are at about the same time from different people. So you've got manufacturers trying to get to the cold pressing of steel. You've got the invention of the chain. You've got the invention of the gear. You've got the invention of the pneumatic tire. And it's not the same people, but they're all very rapidly, lots and lots of different bicycle companies appearing and taking advantage of these innovations. And suddenly the bike is everywhere. And you've got these social implications, so women wearing trousers, cycling around without chaperones. But you also have financial implications. So there's a bicycle bubble in Birmingham, the sort of main main Midlands city in the UK, in the 1890s. Loads and loads of bicycle companies set up in Birmingham. The most successful of them, and the one that really starts the bubble, has the right to use Dunlop technology. So you've got the Dunlop tires. This is a company that's got real potential because everyone wants a bike and these guys have got the best technology. But there's a bit of a sort of bubble in speculation. People see the shares of this company go up and up and up. There's a little bit of financial chicanery, verging on fraud. And then suddenly everybody else is setting up a bicycle company. So some of these bicycle companies never made a bike, and I think almost certainly never intended to make a bike. The whole Mm -hmm. purpose of the company was to be able to sell some shares to people who want to own shares in a bicycle company. And the the people who created the bicycle (laughs) company get out of it. So. So, you get stuff like is probably now illegal and certainly should have been illegal at the time, but people seem to get away with it. So, you'd set up two companies, one of which would order 20,000 bicycles from the other company and then launch this company that says, Well, we've got this order of 20,000 bikes from this other company. So, demand is strong for our product. People would buy the shares and then the, the founders of these companies would just quietly disappear. And this was all happening in the 18, it was about 1896, 1897. Okay. Very dramatic boom and bust. And there was a railroad mania earlier on in the Victorian era, Mm -hmm. Uh, we have the dot-com bubble. I mean, as so often, there's a real technology, there's real progress, there really is something to be excited about. But then the bubble mentality takes over and a lot of people lose a lot of money. Even though there is something really important underneath the surface, the bubble just takes over for a while.
2: Okay, so we've got this interesting sort of financial dynamic going on with the sort of bicycle bubble beginning of the 20th century. Just talk us through how the bicycle sort of changed things socially. I'm so interested in that. You know, what it meant for people, everyday people, what it
0: meant for women, and how bicycles kind of became objects of desire. Steve Jones, the geneticist, once quipped, I think plausibly, although without proof, that the bicycle was a dramatic shock to the the genetic mix of Western society, because it moved us from a situation where all the marriages were within a particular village to a situation where young men could go according to the cycle and they could go to the next valley, they could go to the next village, and suddenly there's much more genetic mixing enabled by the bicycle. Now... As I say, I don't think he has any direct evidence for this, but it seems very plausible. It's a nice idea. It makes sense. It's a lovely idea, but this is what Carl Drace, I'm not sure Carl Drace was particularly thinking about that, but he was thinking when he first invented his wooden horse, he was thinking of this democratising technology. Only rich people can afford a horse, but anybody can afford a bike. And when you think about it, that's still true. The bike is still Mm -hmm. the democratic technology that I mean, not everybody in the world can afford a bike, but a huge number of people can, far, far more than can afford a car. And it provides that freedom. So the first obvious instance of this, example of this was freedom for women in Western societies in the UK and the US in the late 19th century. I mean, one feminist campaigner said towards the end of her life that it was the bicycle had done more than anything else to emancipate women. uh, Susan B. Anthony uh, made this comment Mm -hmm. because suddenly you could just get on your bike, and you could be free. And you didn't have to have a chaperone. You didn't have to have someone with you. There's this lovely vignette in uh, Margaret Guroff's book about the the history of the bicycle, where she talks about Angeline Allen riding around the streets of, I think it was Boston, wearing trousers in the the 1890s. (laughs) And the newspapers, there's a newspaper story about this, like, she wore trousers, was the headline. And they added that she was young, pretty, and divorced. But the interesting thing was that she nobody was fussed about the fact that she was by herself on a bicycle. That was by then completely accepted. It was what she was wearing while she was doing it, not what she was doing. And then I think hints at this idea of the bike providing freedom for young women. And the much more recent work shows, for example, the benefits to schoolgirls in India of having access to a bike. Mm -hmm. LeBron James, basketball star, he's funded a school and every pupil at the school gets a free bike. And LeBron has spoken about how when he was a boy and he and his friends were on their bikes, they felt like they had wings, they were free. So it is this hugely emancipating technology for the poor, for women, for the young. It always was, and it still is today. It's really
2: interesting, actually, because um, as well as this sort of innovation of the bicycle itself, I mentioned my friend, Kat Youngnickel, who's done all this research, looking at all these Victorian patents of Victorian cycle wear. I'm holding up her book now. It's called Bicycles, Bicycles and Blooms. But actually, you know, women were inventing or in- innovating with sort of different materials and also sort of skirts with pulleys and things that you could pull so your skirt would come up so you could get over the crossbar. And it's really interesting <laughs> how these, these sort of really peculiar but wonderful patterns have evolved alongside the bicycle in order to make it rideable, particularly for
0: women. It's really... Uh... I love this idea. That's obviously the solution. Not lower the crossbar, not wear some trousers, skirt pulleys. But yeah, I mean, this is, this is the way humans think. It's,
2: it's terrific. Actually, social mobility, that's really interesting. I remember in the, you know, in the 1980s, I can't remember who it was, it, the bicycle became this great symbol of Thatcherism when... Norman
0: Tebbit. It was Norman Tebbit. Yeah, Norman Tebbit's get on your bike. Yeah. What he actually said, he was talking about his father, and he was saying that when his father was struggling to find work, he got on his bike and cycled around until he found work. So implicitly, he was telling everybody else, be like my dad and and get on your bike. But Yeah, that was the idea. And and obviously people have their feelings about how easy it was to find work when Norman Tebbit was a cabinet minister. But I think the point, the underlying point is that it does expand possibilities. You can Hmm. search in a larger job market. You can search, as Steve Jones implied. You can search in a larger marriage market. You can roam more widely. You're freer. And it's cheap. I mean, you could do all this with a car, but the bike is incredibly cheap.
2: Yeah, just while we're on the subject of the 80s and Steve Jones and Gene pools, the rally bike in the 1970s and the 1980s became this great badge of, it was almost like the peacock's feather. Like, what bike did you have as, when you were growing up in the 1980s in the UK? Like, if you had a rally chopper, I always thought that was the sort of, and I was never allowed a rally chopper. There was a kind of great currency as a kid growing up in the UK about what bike you had. Yeah, I had a tomahawk,
0: which was tomahawk. like a junior chopper. Tomahawk, was like the... great bike, but didn't didn't have the gears. Yeah, I... The, the Chopper had had three gears. I think the Tomahawk didn't.
2: Yeah, that's right. The Tomahawk was the smaller version. The Chopper, of course, had the gear stick in the middle, which was the thing you wanted, and the banana yeah. seat. I had a Commando, which was the junior version of the Grifter. Actually, no, the Boxer was the junior
0: version. Anyway, sorry, but yes. The conversation we're having here sounds very parochial, but in fact, this is, this is really universal. So you've got this very famous Italian movie, I think, from the 1950s, The Bicycle Thief. Of course. And then... There is a Chinese remake called Beijing Bicycle. I think maybe the late 80s, maybe the 90s. But in both cases, this is about somebody's bicycle being stolen and the bicycle is such an important possession and why the thief stole the bike and how the owner desperately tries to get the bike back. And it's the bike as this symbol of of mobility and this this prized possession. And in fact, in China in the 1970s, 1980s, people would talk about, this is deeply communist China, incredibly poor. People talked about the four possessions, the four possessions that you could have as a household that every household aspired to have. And they were the sewing machine, the radio, a wristwatch, and a bicycle. And if you had all four of those, you had the four possessions, then you, you had made it materially speaking. What are the four possessions now? The iPhone... Probably still the bicycle. For me anyway, I suppose it depends where you live. I wonder. I think still the bicycle. That I, I think is a really interesting point because we think of the bicycle as a transitional technology. So you had the horse, then along comes the bike and it's cheaper and better and it paves the way for the car. And then you have the car and then once you can afford the car, you don't need the bike anymore. And that's true for individuals and it's true for societies. That's the way we think and it's completely wrong. And you can see that in the data. So David Edgerton's wonderful book, The Shock of the Old, makes this point that in the 1950s and 60s, global production of bicycles and global production of cars was about the same. You had about the same number of cars made as bicycles around the world. But then as you get into the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, bicycles leave cars in the dust. More and more production of bicycles, production of cars increases, production of bicycles increases much more this incredibly practical thing. They're practical in very poor countries. They're practical in very rich countries. I have two bicycles. I've got the the bike in the shed and I've got the folding Brompton that I can take on the train. I use the bicycle much more than I use the car. Even leaving aside environmental concerns or the, the price of fuel, the bike is incredibly practical technology and it's always been used no matter how much competition there was for the car and i think that tells us something fundamental about technology it's that it's not just a case of oh you had this technology then a better technology comes and then you get rid of the old technology that's rarely how it works and it's certainly not how it's worked with transport and the bike is a is a great example of that
2: we mentioned right at the beginning we sort of talked about Clive Sinclair and we talked about batteries and shared economies and you know bicycles now what about the next decade maybe two decades, where are we gonna be with a bike?
0: So a couple of obvious things that have uh, appeared. One is battery power. So the idea that you can recharge a battery on a bike when you brake, get a little bit of extra juice and use that to help you get up a hill. Personally, I don't see the point of it myself, but then <laughs> yeah. I'm you know, I'm fit and I'm a keen cyclist. I'd like to pedal up a hill. But lots and lots of people find that really useful. And it really struck me. The, the first time I was cycling up a steep hill in Oxford, And it's the only one we have in in the city. I was going to say, which steep hill
2: in Oxford? There's no steep hill in
0: Oxford. We've only got, got, there's one, Headington Hill. There's one, it's quite steep, but we've only got the one. As I was labouring up this hill, enjoying the workout, a lady who I think was at least 15 years older than me, uh, definitely past retirement age, just in a sit-up-and-beg bike, just absolutely effortlessly cycled (laughs) past me, seeming to exert no energy at all. And And the first thing I thought was, goodness me she's she's so fit and then i realized oh it's an electric bike and it's the first time i'd seen one now of course they're absolutely everywhere it was like two three years ago it's quite recent so the electric bikes have come from nowhere and they're clearly they're clearly game changers because lots of people who wouldn't have cycled because they didn't want to get sweaty because they didn't feel they had the energy because they were frightened of the hills they'll be out there with the electric bikes or just because they like because they're fun mm. people like people like to do them And there's a critical mass element there. There is a a movement in favour of cycling in cities called critical mass. And the whole idea is you want more cyclists because the more cyclists there are, the safer each individual cyclist is. So that's coming. And then, of course, the other thing is just a a general movement in many societies towards making more space for bikes on city roads, uh, squeezing the car, expanding the space available for bikes. And those two things together potentially will democratise the bike. I mean, I don't mind sharing a road with cars. I'm not, I'd rather not as a cyclist, but it's fine. But a lot of people worry about that. And the more space there is available for those people, the more they'll get on the bike. And I think with a, you know, with an electric bike on roads that feel safe, the vast majority of the population in a country like the UK is gonna be able to get around by bike. Don't actually need the car. No. Because you, all the journeys are, are, you know, five miles or less. It'd be very interesting to see whether we get there. I don't know that we will. I've made many forecasts that have been proved wrong within months, let alone years. But that seems to be an interesting possibility.
2: It's interesting that Clive Sinclair's electric bicycle, basically the C5 was sort of an electric, recumbent electric bicycle, which wasn't really a bicycle. We've kind of, we're sort of there. I wish Clive Sinclair was uh, was around to see this now because he'd go, ah, that's what I should have done. If only I'd...
0: Yeah. Nice I, I really, the, the irony is very early in his career before he had any money he was experimenting with battery enhanced scooters so he was and then, and now of course they're everywhere you know <laughs> you can't can't cross the street without being hit by a battery power, don't uh, get me started so, don't get me started i'm always yeah. getting run over but by but these things are things. these things are not not as obvious as it seems i think sir clive was somewhat distracted by he, his vision was an electric car And then he was distracted by there were new regulations introduced in the UK for uh, electrically assisted bicycles in the early 80s. And so Clive saw them and thought, oh, my car could, my little car could qualify as an electric bike. If I just make some small modifications, basically add some pedals. And then I wouldn't, people wouldn't have to get insurance. They wouldn't need a driving license. They they don't need a helmet. The age restrictions are more forgiving. And so he saw this as an opportunity, but I think in hindsight, it's much obviously always easier in hindsight. I think in hindsight, it was a distraction. It distracted him from what is the best possible way to get a short-range electric vehicle on the road and make people feel safe in it. And he produced this thing that you know wasn't really a bike, it wasn't really a car, it wasn't really a very practical solution at all because it's just too close to the road. Uh, so you get splashed and you can't be seen. And I think, had he not been distracted by the need to try to squeeze into that regulation and sort of feel that he was somehow getting one over on, you know, the government rulemakers, he might have made a better vehicle. Hard to be sure, but that's my my speculation.
2: That's interesting. I'm lucky. I've ridden a Penny Farthing, I've ridden a Sinclair C5, and I flew the Wright Brothers 1902 glider, all of which we can thank the bicycle for but listen thank you so much for joining me on the show and will you come back on and talk about other things at some point because i i could talk to you
0: all day (laughs) i would gladly gladly do that and if people want to hear more about the c5 that cautionary tales episode is already out and there is one coming about the volcano the year without summer and the invention of the velocipede so yeah they'll be there
2: It's a fantastic podcast. It's really, really good. Oh, I enjoyed the the Tutankhamun one as well I listened to the other day, which is very good as well. Anyway, I'm not going to talk about that, but yes, listen to Cautionary Tales. Tim Harford, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. That's all we've got time for you today. Hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. We've got plenty more to come. I'm back every Wednesday and Sunday with brand new episodes. Uh, Coming up next, we're going to be talking about one of the most iconic invention stories, The Wright Brothers, one of my favourite stories ever. Nothing defines uh, what invention and innovation means, I think, more than that particular story, and how they did their very first controlled flight back in 1903 at Kitty Hawk, Uh, If you want to hear more from Tim, check out his Cautionary Tales podcast. It's absolutely fantastic. And you can find that, of course, wherever you get your podcasts from.
1: The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators' whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honoured amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at t-mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix
0: can help because when pests show up,